Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Forgotten Lives, Part 1. I'm going to read an obituary to you, but please don't be put off by that. You'll soon understand why I'm beginning with this. The obituary is for Carl Frucht, F-R-U-C-H-T, and it reads, Born September 5, 1911. Died March 8, 1991, at age 79. Buried in the Dobling Cemetery, Vienna, Austria. And that is all I was able to find until I began my research. I'll tell the story of Karl Frucht in this episode and that of his wife Lucy in the next. I first encountered Carl and his wife Lucy in Boston at a conference in the late 1970s that my husband John organized for the World Society for the Protection of Animals, that's WSPA, WISPA. At that time, Carl was WISPA's European director. A few years later, I met Carl and Lucy for a second time in Switzerland at their Zurich apartment. That summer, I had accompanied John to a WISPA conference in Geneva, after which we were traveling north by train to Schaffhausen. The reason for this is the tale of a future podcast. And we stopped off in Zurich on the way. By then, Carl had retired from WISPA and didn't attend the conference. He was at that time in his early 70s, wiry and about my height, as far as I can remember. He had thinning gray hair and a broad forehead sloping down to a narrow chin, which emphasized his somewhat darkened eyes. Although his expression seemed somber when at rest, his eyes lit up when he laughed. He had a wicked sense of humor and seemed to find many things and people laughable in an irreverent sort of way. The hearsay was that he escaped the Nazis during Hitler's regime. Someone mentioned that Karl had rescued Holocaust refugees by skiing them over the Alps. But it was all rather vague, and I had no reason to think more of it until I came across a letter that Lucy sent me years ago. I'd put it away at the time, and only recently found it again as I was winnowing out my files. It's a copy of a tribute that Lucy wrote about the American Varian Fry, who died in 1967 and was being memorialized in Washington, D.C. in 1991. Varian Fry and his associates are attributed with saving some 2,000 fugitives from death during the Third Reich's attempt to purge from Germany and its conquered territories all anti-fascists, socialists, Jews, and ultimately all non-Aryans. As soon as Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany in January 1933, he began putting together a list of undesirables to be apprehended. This first list identified prominent artists, writers, philosophers, and political activists. These were the intellectuals whom Hitler feared most. Within months, students in Berlin were burning all un-German books on public bonfires. Prior to Hitler's rise to power, Karl Frucht ran a literary agency in Vienna called Austrian Correspondence with his partner, Herta Pauli. In addition to her work at the agency, the attractive copper-haired Pauli was an author and sometime actress. Because she had published a book on the Austrian peace crusader, Bertha von Suttner, Pauli was already destined to come under scrutiny by Nazi sympathizers. 
Vrucht and Pauli refused to publish anything pro-Nazi and, in fact, had anti-Nazi manuscripts in their possession. When, in 1938, Hitler moved to annex Austria in Anschluss, or unification, they immediately realized that they would be targeted for arrest. At the time, Karl was 27 and Hertha was 32. Knowing they could no longer remain in their native country, Karl and Hertha fled to Paris along with their friend, German-born poet and satirist, Walter Mering. 42-year-old Mering was considered by Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda, to be a dangerous insurrectionist. His books were banned in the Third Reich and were among the first to be burned. In France, the three friends, Karl, Hertha Pauli, and Walter Mering, believed they'd be safe from the Nazis. However, in May of 1940, Germany invaded France. General Philippe Pétain became chief of state the following month, and he soon signed an armistice with Germany, giving Hitler military control over the north and west of the country, including Paris. The new government seat moved from Paris to the former resort city of Vichy in central France. The rest of France was in the unoccupied zone for the time being. The infamous Article 19 of the Armistice required Pétain's Vichy government to imprison those who, one, had escaped from Hitler's regime, two, were enemy aliens residing in France but who were born in Germany or any of the acquired countries such as Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Belgium, and or three, were on Hitler's list of wanted persons. This accommodation between Pétain and Hitler was termed surrender on demand. Those detainees in French custody who were transported back to Germany were sent to concentration camps or tortured and summarily executed. As it became more and more perilous to remain in Paris as the French government rounded up the so-called enemy aliens, all three exiles, Frucht, Pauli, and Mering, hurriedly left the capital. They made their way some 500 miles south to the port city of Marseille on the Mediterranean coast. This was still part of the unoccupied zone, and many of the displaced fugitives relocated there, hoping the Gestapo wouldn't pursue them. They were wrong. And there in Marseille, they met 32-year-old Varian Fry, then head of the American Emergency Relief Committee, the ERC, a private organization formed specifically to assist the targeted academics and artists who were refugees from the Third Reich. New Jersey-born Fry, who'd received a degree in classics from Harvard University and taught Latin, was an unconventional choice to work clandestinely in France to save refugees from the Nazis. But as it turned out, he was the absolute right choice. There is much written about this epoch and Varian Fry, a mere fraction of which you'll find in the show notes to this podcast if you'd like to know more. Lucy says she wrote her memorial about Fry on Carl's behalf in 1991, shortly before his own death in the same year. I'll quote more of Lucy's letter in the next episode, but the part that initially engaged me was the following. Quote, Carl, is also known as Carly, was working with Varian for the American Rescue Committee while I was working with the Jewish organizations based in Lisbon. We sent each other clients, people with specific needs. Carl was preparing various routes over the Pyrenees, this is for the fugitives from Hitler, and acted as guide over those mountains for many of the lucky ones to escape. Through our joint efforts, we made a deal with a Swiss sanitarium to receive passports of dead patients. Carl's job was to alter them for the many trapped in Marseille. In the process, he created husbands and wives not knowing each other, mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, brother and sister. 
than he made these dangerous trips on foot with his newly created families. End quote. The departure point for the hike over the Pyrenees was the town of Bagnol-sur-Mer, some 200 miles to the south of Marseille. The arduous journey over the mountains could take anywhere from three to seven hours, or sometimes overnight, depending on the age and fitness of the fugitive hikers. Once successfully over the Pyrenees, however, the escapees still had to get through border checkpoints and make their way across Franco's Spain to neutral Portugal. That was sometimes easy and sometimes not, depending on the border guards, the proper transit papers and visas, and money. Upon reaching Lisbon, the fugitives could only hope to get exit and entry visas to depart Europe and find a safe haven in another country. Many did not make it. Years later, Carl and Lucy's friend, Deirdre Boniface, writes, quote, It was not from Carly, nor from other refugees, nor even from Lucy that I learned he was one of the heroes. It wasn't until shortly after Carl died, when she went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., that she found out what Carl had accomplished. On display in the museum, she found a sketch map, quote, in ink in Carl's familiar handwriting, unquote, of the route over the Pyrenees with his instructions about how and when to pass. Those who couldn't make the journey by themselves, Carl guided to the Spanish border and sometimes beyond. In addition to Carl, there were others who guided refugees to freedom over the Pyrenees, one of whom was the resolute Lisa Fitko. Lisa Fitko, born Elizabeth Eckstein in Hungary in 1909, grew up in Berlin and, along with her husband Hans, became politically active in opposing fascism and thereby Hitler. When they fled from Germany, they ultimately wound up in banyuls sur mer but not before they spent many weeks in French detainment camps under horrific conditions. Even when released or having escaped the camps, wherever the exiles went, they were pursued by the invading German forces. Until I read the harrowing story related in Lisa Fitko's book, Escape Through the Pyrenees, I did not have a true sense of what hardships and terror the refugees went through to evade the Gestapo. Their pursuit of the fugitives was relentless. For those on the run, the times of near capture is the stuff of nightmares. It is then shocking but not altogether surprising that a number of fugitives took their own lives rather than be apprehended by the Nazis. Lisa Fitko, Carl, and thousands of other women and men wound up in French detainment camps. Varian Fry actually called them in his book concentration camps. They were not the extermination camps as in Germany, but the conditions inside these camps were barely sustainable, with little food, no beds, and latrines they had to dig themselves. In September of 1939, Carl was arrested as an enemy alien and imprisoned in a camp, Mesley de Maine, near Le Mans, France. At the time, American journalist Eric Severide was in France reporting on the war for the Paris Herald. When he toured a French detention camp for his news report, he found writers, lawyers, journalists, and university students in deplorable conditions. Appalled, Severide writes, they had the appearance of human animals. As he was about to depart the camp, suddenly Karl Frucht was beside me. His cheeks were drawn and his wrists were very thin. Earlier in Paris, he had made Karl's acquaintance and considered him a friend. Karl's pitiful appearance so moved Severide that he could hardly talk. 
As they walked together towards the gate where Severide would have to leave Carl behind, he writes, I turned away from Carl and began to cry. I was filled with shame and self-loathing, but I could not help it. I stood still in the mud and cried into my handkerchief. Then, silently, without calling attention to himself and Carl, Severide slipped out of his camel-hair topcoat and handed it to his friend, who had only a thin blanket wrapped around his shoulders. The coat kept Carl warm throughout the cold winter months of his incarceration. This was not to be the only time that Eric Severide would help his friend. That came years later. Ultimately, Carl was released from the camp by enlisting in the French, quote, unarmed military labor force. After discharge, he continued his work helping refugees until it was no longer safe for him to remain in France. Steps ahead of capture by the Gestapo, he made his way to Lisbon, guiding her to Pauli over the Pyrenees with him. Mering had already made it out of Marseille by boat to Martinique when the space reserved for another refugee opened up. Mering landed in New York one month later. The original passenger, whose place Mering took on the boat, was Austrian economist Rudolf Hilferding. Hilferding was due to sail for America, but right before his escape, he was arrested under Article 19. As for Hilferding's fate, Varian Fry writes, his body, suspended from a hook in the ceiling by his necktie or belt, was found in a cell in Sante Prison in Paris the day after Vichy handed him over to the Germans. Pauli and Mering were both on Varian Fry's priority list of those to help emigrate. Carl was not. Thus, with the appropriate visas, both of his friends made it out of Lisbon and reached America before him. But as Carl waited in Lisbon for his opportunity to leave, he met Lucy, who had helped the refugees he sent there, but whom he'd never seen before. They formed an immediate attachment. Only a short time later, however, they lost each other in the scramble to evacuate Lisbon. While Carl was finally assisted by Varian Fry to board a Portuguese freighter to the United States, Lucy secured passage on another vessel. They sailed to different American ports without either knowing where the other had landed. I'll relate more of that in my next podcast. Arriving at Norfolk, Virginia, Carl was not permitted to disembark for lack of sponsorship and money. In order to gain entry to the U.S., the refugees had to have a minimum of $10 on their person. Carl did not. Once again, Eric Severide came to his aid by providing the endorsements and, according to Lucy, $100 in cash. As Lucy relates, Carl quipped that while he got on the boat without money, quote, I left the boat as a capitalist. Carl would not stay in his new homeland for very long, however. Soon after his arrival, America entered the war against Germany and Japan. Carl subsequently enlisted in the U.S. Army as his wife-to-be remained in New York. As Lucy tells it, Carl explained to her that, quote, he had to join the Army after Pearl Harbor was bombed. He didn't believe in killing, but this was his war. Having narrowly escaped the Third Reich four times, out of Vienna, then Paris, Marseille, and finally Lisbon, He'd finally made it to safety in America. Nonetheless, Lucy said, he had to return to danger. Carl, then 40 years old, enlisted in the 1st United States Army. He was made a citizen on the spot and transported to Camp Ritchie, Maryland, for military intelligence training. 
he became one of the so-called Richie Boys and was assigned to one of the many Prisoners of War interrogation teams, PWI. Carl's team consisted of four enlisted men and two officers, including three former Germans, one Czech, one Swiss, and himself, the lone Austrian. All spoke fluent German, were anti-Nazi refugees, and with one exception, were all Jewish. Carl arrived back in France on June 7, 1944, the day after D-Day, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. His team advanced with the troops fighting their way into Germany. Fearing capture more than death, most of the team members concealed their real names, addresses, and photographs that might identify them to the enemy. When one of the prisoners recognized Carl from his student days in the University of Vienna, where he received an LLB in 1935, Carl not only had to deny it, but also had to punish the prisoner for insulting him. As Carl writes, we were proud to tell the Nazis we were Jews, but we never let on that we had come from Europe. The past of ours seems so unreal, so like a bad dream, that we never mentioned it and never spoke to each other in our native tongues. Their interrogation of prisoners focused on strategic emplacements of mortars and military installations. They elicited any and all information from the POWs in any situation. Call writes, I questioned many a prisoner in a foxhole, with both of us ducking when a shell went over. When they finally crossed France and reached Germany, he says, we were to have a close run with death in the December Battle of the Ardennes. Before ever visiting the extermination camps, he witnessed the results of the German brutality as, quote, Belgian refugees were herded into barns and churches by the advancing Wehrmacht, German Unified Armed Forces. Let me say that again so that you understand this. Herded into barns and churches and burned alive. But it was in Buchenwald that he saw, quote, the crematorium with its six-door furnace and the shaft down which the SS had dumped the bodies of the thousands hanged on the three gallows in the courtyard. He also saw the shelf of urns holding the ashes of the very last victims who were burned before the American troops arrived. After the war, Carl returned to America and married Lucy. They lived in New York City, where he earned a living as a technical writer, which was increasingly frustrating to him. As Deirdre Bonifaz writes, Carly could not adjust to the mundane daily rituals of the comforts of middle-class life after the defining drama of his time. To satisfy his need for meaningful work, Carl went to the World Health Organization. As an information officer, he was stationed, accompanied by Lucy, in New Delhi, India, for four years, 1967 to 1971. There, he writes, he, quote, had the impossible task to inform 800 million people, a quarter of the world's population, about health. About his time there, he writes, my work led me to palaces and temples, to the misery of the slums, to the mountain villages of the Himalayas, to the snow of Afghanistan, and to the smallpox-infested areas of India and Indonesia, to Burma and Thailand, into areas with cholera and malaria and to the universities of big cities. In the process, I met heads of state, ministers and functionaries, scholars and doctors, people from all walks of life, and, of course, writers and artists. Upon returning to WHO headquarters in Geneva, he organized a conference entitled Food, Health, and Scientific Development, 
1973 for the 25th anniversary of the WHO. Then, because he had reached age 60, he was retired from the WHO. But how Carl then came to work in Zurich for the World Federation for the Protection of Animals, WFPA, WFPA, is unclear to me, other than it was by invitation. At WFPA, he produced literature about animals, much of it aimed at schoolchildren. When WFPA joined with the International Society of Protection of Animals, which then took on the name World Society of Protection of Animals, Carl's role expanded to European director. Still based in Zurich, he worked in animal protection for 10 years. In 1992, Carl's autobiography was published posthumously. Perhaps it answers some of those questions. Unfortunately for me, it's in German, and there is no English translation. As I said, I don't read German, but I understand the title roughly translates as Notice of Loss, a Report of Survival. Of Carl's friends and fellow survivors, Herta Pauli and Walter Mehring, they also located in New York City after being employed at Metro-Golden-Mayer in Hollywood for a brief period. Pauli established a notable career in writing and published a number of books, including children's literature. She married Ernst Bosch, who wrote under the name of E.B. Ashton in 1951. She died age 63 in 1973. Although Mehring became a naturalized U.S. citizen, he returned to Germany in 1953 after the war. Several years later, he moved to Zurich, where he died in 1981 at age 85. I wonder what might have happened to Carl's parents. Were they left behind in Austria when he escaped? Carl's mother had died when his sister was born, and at some point his father, left with two-year-old Carl and an infant daughter, remarried. Apparently Carl's father and stepmother left Vienna around the same time he did, as did his sister, Hedda Frucht Kornfeld, by then a medical doctor. She left Austria with her husband and her own son and also fled to France. But Carl's father and stepmother went to Czechoslovakia, where Carl's father was born. However, as the anti-Jewish movement grew also in that country, they decided they could not stay there either. Encountering many obstacles along the way, and with Carl's father in deteriorating health, they went on to Kiev in the Ukraine. But not long after arrival, Carl's father died of a fever in the Kiev hospital. Carl, according to his secretary, kept intellectually alive for all the latter years of his life. He was busy writing his memoirs, giving interviews to newspapers and the radio, and organizing a posthumous exhibition for the Austrian National Library on his dear friend Hertha Pauli. In my possession is a symposium program, also in German, from the Pythagoras Institute in the Ministry of Environmental Affairs in Vienna in September 1990 for one of the presentations by a Dr. Ingrid Schragel entitled, Is There Life Before Death? From Denaturing the Living World to Anti-Causality at Hand. I have absolutely no idea what that means, but apparently Carl did because he was the moderator. Also enclosed with the program is a photograph from the symposium. In it are three people standing in what seems to be the lobby of the lecture room. The presenter is in the middle, a young, attractive woman in a red and blue striped blouse under a blue jacket with very blonde hair down to her shoulders. She is flanked on her right by a tall, younger man, a veterinarian from Brazil, in jeans with a pale blue shirt opened at the top showing his white T-shirt underneath. Carl is on her left, 
looking younger than his age of 79. He's wearing a white shirt, dark blue jacket and tie, and is also taller than her. All three are smiling broadly, but while the young man and the young woman look directly at the camera, Carl is standing slightly sideways with his left hand on his hip. He is looking down and smiling, not into the camera, but deliciously at her, which seems to answer decidedly in the affirmative the critical question, is there life before death? Not long after that program, however, in the following March, Carl died of a heart attack in a Vienna hospital. He had lived life to the fullest after nearly losing it to Hitler's extermination policies. He is buried in the Dobling Cemetery, Vienna, Austria, the same cemetery in which friend, partner, and fellow survivor Herter Pauli is buried. Having told you as much as I've been able to learn about Karl Frucht, you will see how woefully inadequate his obituary was. It is difficult, and I admit unfair, to try to summarize a life in the space of a podcast. Not only a forgotten life, but a remarkable one. Yet it needs doing, if only because so few people know the scope of Karl Frucht's career. His colleagues were unaware of his experiences before, during, and after World War II. Evidently, Carl didn't tell them. Did he feel they wouldn't be interested? Or was it too much to possibly speak about and let the past be the past? I wish I'd known him better. Perhaps someone will translate Carl's autobiography. And perhaps someone hearing this podcast will know more about Carl than I do and be able to fill in the gaps. I'd like to give special thanks to Wim DeCock, president of World Animal Net, and author Pat Perry, both of whom assisted me with translation from German to English. Also, I am appreciative for the assistance of staff at Brandeis University's Archives and Special Collections Department of the Goldfarb Library, and staff at Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. My gratitude also to Pierre Sauvage, documentary filmmaker and president of the Varian Fry Institute, for his encouragement. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next podcast about Lucy Frucht. It's quite different from Carl's. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com. <laughs>